ever since, ever since he was a little boy, his parents have been promising him that they would give him a beautiful car to drive when he turned 16. He even planned to park it in the family's old barn where it could stay warm and dry. Only first, his dad would have to get rid of that old car that was sitting in the barn. And he couldn't wait for his dad to haul it off to the dump to make room for his dream car. But when would that day come? When would that new car arrive? And when would his dad get rid of that junky old car under the tarp? And one evening in early summer, he heard strange sounds coming from that old barn. Sounded like power tools, a drill, maybe a hammer. And he thought, what's going on? He peered into the darkness and saw nothing but stars overhead. But he noticed that a light was on in the barn. So he walked into the warm night air down the dirt path and poked his head into the barn door. When he saw the tarp rolled up and left against the door, he excitedly thought, is dad finally getting rid of that junky old car? In its place, he saw one of the most incredible sports cars in automotive history. It was a Corvette, but not just any Corvette. It was a 1963 Corvette 327 V8 with a split window painted candy apple red. So that was the car underneath the tarp all those years. He stood there stunned. It was always there, just waiting for his father's masterful work of restoration. At that moment, his father looked up, his hands deep in the engine bay, and he handed his son a socket wrench. And with a broad smile, he said, come on, son, grab a tool, and let's get this car ready. The story is adapted from a book called What on Earth Do We Know About Heaven? I think it summarizes well what I hope we can communicate in our time together this morning. The word restore is one of our best words. It really and truly is a good news word. In all of its forms, to restore means to renovate, it means to revive, it means to repair. It means to return something or to return someone to a former way of being. So we love it when old cars are restored. We love it when historic antebellum homes are restored. And that's all well and good. But how much more important is it when we hear about struggling marriages that have been restored? Or even better yet, when wayward Christians are restored. In every way, the word restore is a word of hope. It is a word of transformation. Again, it is truly a good news word. And because restore is a good news word, it is appropriate. It is a word that is built for the darkest of days. We need words like this, don't we? We need good news words that can help us as we try and, and navigate through the darkest days of human history. And the cry for restoration is really and, and truly a lament, which we talked about in our time together last week. It's a, a cry born out of this recognition that things are not as they once were. But that's not putting a fine enough point on it. 
Because biblical lament isn't just a cry that things aren't as they once were. It's not just nostalgia for the good old days. I'm of the opinion that the good old days weren't all that good to begin with, frankly. No, biblical lament is much deeper than just saying things aren't the way they once were. Biblical lament is all about the fact that things aren't as they should be. And so lament is really language for the valley. We touched on this again last week when we looked at that question, the question that is asked of the people of faith, the people in God's word, more than any other question. How long, O Lord? The Bible is filled with that kind of language. It's filled with lament language that really gives voice to our experience in the darkest spaces of life's valley. That's what biblical lament is really all about. And so a moment ago, Jacob and Isaiah read for us from Psalm 80. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but the line that Isaiah read right there up front, the psalmist uses the the term, the phrase, shepherd of Israel. He refers to God as Israel's shepherd. And that calls to mind for us Psalm 23. It calls to mind for us David's words when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But whereas David, in the 23rd Psalm, calls to mind and evokes these images of green pastures and still waters, right? Psalm 80 is built for an entirely different terrain. Psalm 80 is language for when we find ourselves going through the valley of the shadow of death. And the Bible is filled with language like this that helps us navigate through those dark seasons of life. So lament is language for the valley. But but there's also this, godly lament is always a cry for godly restoration. So 40% of the Psalms in our Bibles qualify as lament Psalms. But these are more than just woe is me psalms i mean you know, the, the language that's there it's more than just you know stomping your foot and, and and wagging a finger at god it's it's far more than that it's more than throwing a temper tantrum and and, and reading the riot act to the lord that's not the fullness of biblical lament no biblical lament is always this cry for revival and for renewal and a cry for restoration The way we put it last week that might be helpful for us as we pick up right here this week is this. This is the language where we're saying, God, I wish that you would do what only you can do. Biblical lament is all about that. Wishing that God would do what only God can do. So it comes from this deep desire that God would intervene, that he would step into the deep and low and dark places of life's valleys and meet us right there where we are and shine his light on us in that space, and then and pull us up and to elevate us up out of those dark seasons. That's what biblical restoration is all about. And when we begin to pray for that, when we begin to cry out to God for that, you know what happens? Our imagination begins to just unfold. As we begin to dream and pray and think about what God will do, when God does what only God can do. When we begin to imagine and think about the way it will be in the end, 
when he once and for all makes all things new and makes everything right that has been so wrong for so long. And that's at the essence of what Jacob and Isaiah read for us from Psalm 80. And the language that is used there in that psalm is language that we'll use through the rest of this month, this language of shine on us. Because Psalm 80 is really a cry to God for restoration, that God would shine his face upon his people. And so throughout the month of December, as we close out 2017, Lord willing, I'd like for us to just, to just spend some time here. And to think about this, this call for God, Lord, would you shine your face upon us? And what I'd like for us to do every week as we just work our way through the end of this year, I'd like for us to think about a different good news word, a different word that comes to us in, in God's word that, that we can kind of hang our hats on, that we can rally around and we can meditate on because these are the kinds of words that, that are built for those dark seasons. These are the kinds of words through which God shines his light upon us. And all of this is pointing us toward the way in which God has shined his light on us in an, an ultimate way. The greatest way he's ever shined on us is through the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ, who stepped into human history. And so today, with all this in mind, as we think about God shining on his people, our good news word for today is, is restore. Three times the psalmist says in that psalm that Isaiah and Jacob read for us, three times these words are found. Would you read them with me out loud today? Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So that Hebrew word for restore, it is used throughout the Old Testament, and it is always a good news word. It's found in, a, in, in places like Genesis 8, in the Noah story. And it says there that, that God caused those floodwaters to recede. In fact, it says that the Lord himself turned back those waters. And so the, the sense of restoring there is God turning back those waters of judgment that he sent. In the flood. The same word is used in another place, like 2 Kings chapter 20. You read about King Hezekiah, and the Lord has decided to heal him, and Hezekiah is given a sign, a sign that God is with him. And so what Hezekiah says is he sees the shadow on the ground, and he says, Okay, God, if you're with me, turn back that shadow, restore that shadow, take it back 10 steps. He said it's nothing for that shadow to continue to go forward as the sun sets, you know, in, in the sky. But instead, turn, those, turn that shadow back. And so the same word is used there to describe this reversal of direction. But more importantly than any of those, this word is used most often in the Old Testament to describe a return to the promised land. It is used by people who are writing from this experience of exile writing from a place where they are far from home. And the biblical cry for restoration comes there more than any place else. Lord God, would you please come and take us home to be with you? And that joyful concept of what it would be like to return home with all of God's people, that's what makes restore such a good news word for us. It really is one of the central themes of the Bible. That God's people are, are often in this position of finding themselves as strangers in a strange land, as exiles, as aliens. 
It begins with Abraham, and he sets off for this land. He leaves his father's home. He leaves his people to, to step out in faith and to go to a land he's never seen, to follow a God who has called him. And so he steps out in faith, and every step of the way, Abraham is a stranger in a strange land. And that's, that's thematic for the rest of his story and the rest of his people, because then years later, his own descendants would spend 430 years in Egyptian captivity, where they didn't know the customs, they didn't know the language, they were strangers in a strange land. And later generations of God's people would find themselves in Assyria or in, in Babylon. And again, they're strangers in a strange land, and they don't know the customs, and they don't know the way of being, but right up until the, the very time of Jesus even, the children of Israel could be considered exiles, even in the promised land, because they're living up under Roman occupation. They're not living in the fullness of freedom in the land of promise that God had given them. And that contributes to this persistent theme that we see in the scriptures, where God's people are to think of themselves as outsiders, to think of themselves as being out of step with the prevailing world. Simon Peter, in the letter we call 1 Peter, he uses that same language to describe us. That we are strangers and aliens and exiles in this place. We're out of step with the prevailing culture because we subscribe to a different economy. God's people value different things. We value things other than the way many other people value. We, we speak a different language. We subscribe to a different worldview. And all of this is just predicated on this concept that God is calling his people to live as exiles to live out the values of the kingdom of God in the present. So there's this idea that the way it's going to be in the end, the values that will reign supreme in eternity, in heaven, they are to be embodied in the present among God's people. So the way that we will love one another then, God says, live in that kind of love now. And the way that we will fellowship with one another then, live in that same sense of fellowship now. And the joy that will reign supreme on that day, live as God's people with that sense of abiding joy in your presence now. And so all of this is pointing to this idea that, that we as God's people are, are out of step a bit. Inevitably, when we love God and love neighbor the way God wants us to, that will put us at odds with the prevailing culture and so there's this sense in which God's people are always called to live with this sense of being far from home but there's also this that God's people are also always living with this promise of someday with this promise of reunion so yes, it's true, God's people can find themselves in those deep valleys, those dark places, the valley of the shadow of death. We all pass through that in one season or in one form or another. We all find ourselves living in exile. But at the same time, God has equipped us, he has gifted us, he has blessed us with this promise of a reunion, the promise of a far distant shore. And throughout the ages, that promise, that vision has been called different things by God's people. It's the God's messianic banquet table. It's been called the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. Or just in our shorthand for that, we often just refer to it as heaven. And although the, the titles and the language for that may continue to, to change, the God-given vision is always the same. It is a promise of someday, a promise of restoration. And so throughout the scriptures, 
God is always calling his people to live this way. And throughout the scriptures, God's people are always calling back and hastening the day when God will arrive, when he will part the the clouds and come near once more to take us to be with him forevermore. And that's the tone of Psalm 80 that Jacob and Isaiah read for us. It is also the tone of another passage that we'll look at together today. Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, Isaiah says. Oh, that you would tear them apart and and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, and no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Isaiah 64 is a prayer to God for help in a time of great need. And Isaiah yearns for God to make himself known. Uh, He looks around and he wishes that God would just rip the heavens open and and walk right into history and make things right that have been wrong for so long. Isaiah wants God to come near so that things will be right once again. And Isaiah even goes so far as to call out to God and he says, you know, way back when you did some pretty incredible things. You came near way back then. And since then, no eye has seen and no ear has heard of a God who's quite like you, Isaiah says. But Isaiah understands that his own days are quite different. His own days are not like those Bible stories that he heard years ago, years ago when he was growing up, when he heard about God who would part waters, the God who would pass over Egypt, the God who would cause the sun to stand still, the God who would bless a hundred-year-old couples with the gift of new life. Isaiah looks around and he says, those days are not my days because God is far from his people right now. And Isaiah says, I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want to live in a world where God is far from his people. So Lord, would you rip the heavens open and come near? Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been so fed up with the way of the world that you just look at the sky and you just wish you'd hear that trumpet blast? You just wish that the heavens would part and that, that God would come near, that he would, he would step into our experience and make all things new. Have you ever just wished that God would act right then in that moment to fulfill all of those promises? Are, are, you, are you wishing that God would restore things to the way they ought to be? Don't you wish we lived in a world free of cancer? A world where there is no more sexual assault. A world where there is no more hunger and thirst. No more pain and tears. No more violence and war. The things that that just tear at our souls in this experience, in this life. You ever wish God would just show up and come near and restore things? If so, Isaiah gives language that we can draw on in moments like that. So I want you to see this image. This uh, was painted by 
drawn by a young lady who's a member of this church. Her name's Keaton Hall. Uh, her brother Aiden just received uh, his Bible. I'm Toby and Darlene, may, I don't even know if you knew this was happening. Maybe you did, but um, through Matt, I was able to communicate with Keaton. She's a freshman at Harding. And she's a great artist. And so I just asked her to read through Psalm 80 and to read through Isaiah 64. And I said, could you visually represent what you see there? We're, we're talking about restoration on Sunday. And, and I don't have much artistic ability, but I hear you do. And so she spent hours working on this image. And I hope you can see it. So it, it represents there for us up at the top. You can see those clouds are parting, right? And those clouds are dark, they're purple, they're gray, they, they're the storm clouds, but, but they're starting to part, and behind those clouds you begin to see this light from on high, and it is, it is shining through, and that light is powerful enough to split through those clouds. And the light of God shines down on creation in this moment. And it makes its way all the way down to the earth. And I, again, I don't know if you can see this from where you're seated or not, but just the expanse of that light as it kind of comes out, it, it touches the ground. And that is where you begin to see color. You begin to see life once more. And all around, it's just it's green and it's brown and it's, it looks like it's okay. It kind of looks like a healthy creation until you see the power of God's shining light bringing the fullness of life and restoring creation to its originally good purposes. And this visually represents, I think, what Isaiah is praying, what Psalm 80 is getting at. This plea and this cry that the heavens would part and that God would come near and he would have his redeeming, renewing, and restorative light to shine on creation once more. And that is the heart of what we read here in these scriptures. And I love that this just comes from the imagination, the giftedness of one, one of our own. And if we're not ready for that kind of restoration, if we're not praying for its, its hastening, it may be that we've grown a little too comfortable in our, in our exile. You know, they estimate that only about 10% of the Jews who were exiled in Babylon, only about 10% of them actually made the return trip to the promised land when the time came. That for the other 90%, they had grown so comfortable in exile, they had grown so comfortable in Babylon. And when the time came to return back home and to claim the fullness of God's promise, to live in the land that he had promised their forebears, they just didn't even have the eyes to see it. They'd grown so comfortable in their exile that the promise of restoration and renewal had lost its fervor, had lost its zeal. And I wonder sometimes if we're not numb to God's promises of restoration as well because we're too comfortable in Babylon. But here's the thing. In Isaiah, rather than just lamenting that God is not near, Isaiah turns his focus inward. You see, Isaiah, like all good prophets of God there in the Bible, Isaiah knows the real reason that God seems distant. It's because of human sin. And even that doesn't put a fine enough point on it. According to Isaiah, it's not human sin in the abstract, but it's our sin. So yes, the world is in need of restoration, absolutely, but 
Let's, we don't even have to go there. We can begin much closer at home. We, Isaiah says, we are in need of restoration. And he goes on to say, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And, and the wind, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us waste away because of our sin yet O lord you are our father we are the clay you are the potter we are all the work of your hand so do not be angry beyond measure O lord do not remember our sins forever oh look upon us we pray for we are all your people. To speak of sin is as unpopular today as I'm sure it was in Isaiah's day. But in order for this good news word to really land, in order for the good news to really be the good news, we have to first acknowledge the bad news. And the bad news is this, that, that sin separates. And Isaiah knows that and we know that. The greatest commands that the Lord left us were to love God and to love others. And when we do that, when we love God, we draw near to him. When we love one another, we draw near to one another. But that's the great threat of sin is that it separates and it isolates. When I sin against you, when I wrong you, estrangement takes place. When I sin against you, I've, I create a barrier between you and me. And it's not the way that the Lord wants it to be. And even moreover, whenever I sin against the Lord, what do I do? I, can, I, I create estrangement between God and myself. And that sin isolates and it separates. And Isaiah's cry is a lament rooted in that same idea, the same awareness of sin's isolation. For he says, you have hidden your face from us. Your face doesn't shine on us, O Lord. You have hidden your face from us because of our sins. But Isaiah once again appeals to God as father, as a good shepherd, as a potter. We are your people, he says. So would you remember our sins no more? Isaiah pleads for the restoring power of God to bring forgiveness, that God might shine his face upon his people, that they might be saved. In the very beginning, that idea of God shining his face upon his people it is associated with salvation. It goes all the way back to number six in the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Isaiah knows we don't experience the shining redemption of God's face because of the, because of the, the presence of sin in our own lives. So today, today we turn our eyes toward the one who was the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer. Isaiah was yearning again for God to open the heavens, to part the clouds, to come near, to enter into human history in a powerful way. And in Jesus, God has done just that. In Jesus, God has responded. 
In Jesus, we hear this good news word once again, because in Jesus, we have one who restores us by doing what only God can do, restoring us in spite of our sinfulness. And Jesus comes to us in response to the prayer of Isaiah. He comes to us, but not in the form I suspect that Isaiah was anticipating, at least not in that particular prophecy. He doesn't come as a cosmic enforcer, and he doesn't come as a judge with a gavel in hand. No, he comes in the form of this defenseless little babe, God wrapped in flesh. But he comes to restore. He comes to revive. He comes to renew. And that restoration movement that he started 2,000 years ago, it continues to this day. And it continues on into eternity. And that's what we remember this morning. We're about to share our time around the Lord's table. For those of you who will be serving us, if you'd like to get up at this time and go make your preparations, we'll pray in just a moment and then you can come through and serve us. But today, today we celebrate. Today we remember Jesus. We remember his cross and we remember his empty tomb. We remember right now his death. We also remember his resurrection. We remember that he too passed through the valley. He too passed through that valley of the shadow of death. Because, in the words of Isaiah, we all have become like one who is unclean. And we remember today that he bore the agony of the cross. Because again, in the words of Isaiah, we are continually swept away by our sins. And in the wake of that atoning death, we also remember this. That God restored him. God revived him. God brought him back to life and he lives to this very day. And so that is why we come at this with deep reverence. Because we understand the enormity of sin, that it is our sin that put him there. And whatever restoration needs to happen in the world, it begins here. Because each one of us, you and I, we're all in the same boat. We need restoration. We need God to do what only God can do. And that is what led him to that cross. So that requires a certain amount of decorum and reflection in a moment like this. But on the other hand, we recognize also that the tomb was found empty. Not only did he die, but he rose again. And because he lives even to this day, I believe we can engage in this moment also with a great sense of celebration, a great sense of worship, a great sense of gratitude, knowing that our king lives to this moment. And he is worthy of our praise because it is through that death and that resurrection that we now have life that whatever restoration is to be had it's found right there so today we remember the one jesus in whom we find true restoration let's pray together father today with these words ringing in our ears lord we we give thanks to you for the restoration that we find in christ Father, we, we just begin with an acknowledgement of the presence of sin in our, our lives, Father. 
Father, we are not proud of that. We, we know that we have hurt others because of our sin. We know that we have hurt you because of our sin. And Lord God, we, we repent of that in this moment. Lord God, we, we understand and acknowledge that on that cross you were doing what only you can do. And on that cross, as that blood was shed, you were redeeming our souls, making this promise of someday possible. For that, God, we are so grateful. We remember right now by honoring this death. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.